read you an article I came across the other week. It's titled, China Cracks Down on Fake Meat Made from Rats and Foxes. <laughs> I'll read you just a few parts of this. It said, more than 900 people have been arrested in China for involvement in meat-related crimes, including producing fake beef and mutton from animals such as rats, minks, and foxes. It says, in addition to producing falsely labeled meat, the crimes included using banned chemicals and processing of products, selling meat infected with various diseases and injecting water into meat to pad up its weight. <laughs> Security officials seized more than 20,000 tons of illegal meat products during the crackdown. It goes on to say that crook producers faking meat to beef up the bottom line is hardly China's exclusive problem. Europe recently had a major scandal over horse meat laced with banned drugs, which was sold as more expensive beef. <sighs> I don't know what it is about that article, but there's something about that that is just unsettling to me. It just doesn't sit right. And maybe it's because it has to do with food. But I think part of it is also because there's something unsettling when you have anything that has been mislabeled on purpose. That's supposed to be one thing, but in reality, it is another. There's something unsettling about that wrong labeling. And in the same way, there's something unsettling when you see the label Christian... But in reality, the one who has been labeled that is not a Christian. It's unsettling when that label is not true. And so how do you know if you're a true disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, let's look at that for a second. The topic that I'm going to be going over is True Discipleship. That's my title, True Disciples. And we're going to start in John chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. And the big idea that I want us to see here is be a true disciple. Be a true disciple. Now, there are certainly lots of things that Jesus said and did throughout his ministry, the things that he left as an example for us to follow in. But there are certain points in the gospel accounts where Jesus just comes out as plain as day and says, if you are my disciple, and then he follows it up with, then this must be true. If you are going to follow me, then this has to happen. And he does that a few points throughout the gospel accounts. And we're not going to look at all of the gospel accounts, but we're going to look specifically at the gospel of John. And in the gospel of John, there are three specific instances where Jesus sort of gives us these critical discipleship checkpoints. In which he says, if you're my disciple, then the following will be true. So in John chapter 8... I want us to see, be a true disciple by continuing in God's word. I'm going to read verses 31 and 32. It said, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, 
then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. You're probably familiar with those verses. What I find interesting about this passage is that even though Jesus was speaking to Jews who believed him, at the end of chapter 8, those same Jews, they're going to pick up stones and they're going to try to kill Jesus because of what he's about to say. You see, Jesus claims to be God in verse 58, before Abraham, I am. They knew what that meant. They knew he was claiming to be God and to be at equal status of God. So obviously to them that was blasphemy. They wanted to kill him for it. And even though it said that he told these things to Jews who had believed in him, it says also in verse 37 that, I know you're Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. My word has no place in you. In other words, these Jews who believed in Jesus were so full of their own presuppositions, they were so full of what they already thought was right, that they could not accept what Jesus was going to say to them. In other words, they were too full to be filled. And that's why Jesus prefaces what he's going to say to them by letting them know, if you're truly disciples of mine, if you're truly my disciples, then you will continue in my word. You'll continue in my word. It reminds me of John chapter 11, when they catch word that Lazarus has died. And in verse 15, Jesus is speaking to his disciples after he lays it out clearly to them. He says, Lazarus is dead. He says, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Isn't that interesting that he's talking to his disciples, his closest followers who are right there with him. They believe him. And yet, at the same time, Jesus says, I'm glad I wasn't there because you need to believe. You see, the Gospel of John is often referred to as the Gospel of Belief. Over and over, you come across in each passage, believe, 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 believe. And yet, if you look back at all those verses, believe and belief in the Gospel of John never stops with just acknowledging who Jesus is or what Jesus has done. That's never the end of the story for what belief means in the Gospel of John. Belief in the Gospel of John is a continual growing process and one that involves his disciples continuing in his word. In John chapter 6, if you'll go there with me. In John chapter 6, verses 66 through 69, Jesus had this huge crowd of followers that was going wherever he went. And he was drawing attention and more people were coming to him. And then he starts to say some strange things. His followers don't really understand what he's talking about. He's talking about, he starts saying things about, if you're going to follow me, uh, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And these things were very confusing to these disciples. 
And it said that in verse 60, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And if you go down further in verse 66, it says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. It continues on and says, so Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What we see here is that belief in Christ Jesus means that you have to continue in his word and you have to keep following him even when you don't have all the answers. Even when you don't quite understand what he's telling you. Belief requires that you keep walking with him. Many of his disciples that day, they, they couldn't handle that. They left, they withdrew from him. And when he turned to his disciples closest to him, Simon Peter spoke up. And as we just read, it doesn't say that Peter understood everything Jesus was saying. It just said Peter understood that Jesus had the words of life and that there was no one else worthy of following. Being a true disciple means that you'll continue in God's word even when you don't have all the answers. And it means that you're going to keep learning. And then you're going to keep dwelling on this. And you're going to keep walking with him. And you're going to keep growing and following him every step of the way. In other words, you're going to be open to what his word has to teach you and what his word has to say to you. Let me give you an illustration. There's a, a good friend of mine I went to school with. His name is Matt Wojcik. And he has a really neat conversion story. You see, he has a nice family, nice parents, but he grew up in the Baptist church. And he grew up thinking, you know, when he prayed Jesus into his heart that he was saved. And uh, his parents were good people and he was a, a good guy. And he was sincere and honest and open to what the word had to say. Well, one day he became interested in a girl named Ashley, a girl whom he would later on marry. But Ashley's dad wanted to sit down with Matt and do a Bible study with him because Ashley's dad was a gospel preacher. So Matt said, well, I'm not sure if there's really anything I have to you know, learn. I, I've read the Bible, but I know that the Bible is uh, very full of knowledge and, and I can still learn more and I can still keep growing. So sure, I'll do a Bible study with you. Well, Matt and him did a Bible study on baptism. And at the end of that Bible study, Matt learned that Actually, baptism was to receive the gift of salvation and to have his sins washed away. You see, he didn't know that before. He just thought it was an outward sign of what had already happened when he prayed Jesus into his heart. Well, at the end of that study, Ashley's dad baptized Matt into Christ. He came out of those waters, a new creation. You see, Matt was open to the word of God. He was open to what this had to say because he knew that it was the final authority. I'll give you another story. Some time ago, Aaron and I were studying with a distant relative, and we started to talk about what she really believed. And I said, are you saved? And she said, well, I'm not sure. I hope so. And I was like, well, what do you mean? I mean, you're either saved or you're not. Are you saved? And she said, well, I'm not really sure about that. I hope that when it comes to it, I'll be saved. 
Or we begin to talk about verses which speak on salvation and how you know you're saved. We talked a little bit about First John. You can know that you know you're saved and the certainty of your salvation. And when that point in time happens and how you can look back and say, Hey, I was saved when I was baptized into Christ Jesus. Well, we talked with her and explained some things, but there was still this element of uncertainty that she had and, and took away with her. She just wasn't quite willing to reject what we had to say, but she wasn't quite willing to accept what we had to say either. She was kind of in the middle. I'll give you another story. One of my teachers was telling me about a Bible study that he was doing with a, an older woman and they were going through passages on baptism and they, they finally came to the passage in 1 Peter 3.21, right? It says, baptism now saves you, not an appeal to God for a clean conscience, or not the removing of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a clean conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so he said, what do you, what do you think about that verse? And she opened up her Bible to 1 Peter 3.21 and it had been blacked out with a magic marker. She said, I don't read that verse. Well, obviously, you blacked it out. <laughs> I think it's funny because even though she blacked it out with a magic marker, there's a lot of people who black out plenty of verses in their heart, even without a magic marker. Be a true disciple by continuing in God's word. In other words, don't be too full to be filled. Well, not only be a true disciple by continuing in God's word, but be a true disciple by loving each other. I know that sounds vague and that sounds nebulous, but we're going to hone in on actually some very specific ways in the context that Jesus says this. Go to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, and I'll read verses 31 through 35. It says, therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Notice that last verse. Jesus says one of the distinguishing characteristics of your discipleship is going to be that people know you love your brother and sister in Christ. Be a true disciple by loving each other. Now, back of that command, Jesus is speaking about the glory of God being carried out through him. And he's talking about his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave and the glory that will bring to God. The glory from what will be accomplished through the plans that God had been carried, carrying out and executing to the T since the creation of the world. The plan that he planned before the foundation. Now, when Jesus was walking on this earth, and when he was about teaching people, and when he was healing people, 
and touching the untouchable, if you go back and reread the Gospels, you'll notice that not one thing that Jesus did was really for his own glory. Every miracle, every word that came out of his mouth, it was always aimed at pointing people back to God's glory. It was always aimed at bringing glory to his Father in heaven. And that was the kind of love in which Jesus exemplified for us. It was a love that aimed toward loving others, but not just so you could walk away patting yourself on the back. Good job today, Jesus. Good job today, disciple. But it was a love that was poured out to one another so that glory could be brought to God. So that that person you're loving will know why you're loving them. And so that they will be looking to God after they encounter you. So that's the kind of love that Jesus is talking about when he tells his disciples to love one another. It's a love that is aimed towards God's glory, but it's also a love that is sacrificial in its very nature. Again, he's speaking of his sacrifice on the cross. And not just his sacrifice on the cross, but think about the sacrifice that Jesus took upon himself, being God in his very nature, and having been poured out into the form of man, having been tempted in every way that man is tempted, so that he could leave behind a path for us to follow. And then, willingly, being crucified upon that cross, that is a sacrificial love. And when he tells his disciples to love one another, that command is back of the sacrificial love which he exemplifies himself. And so the love we're supposed to have for one another is supposed to be aimed towards God's glory. Not your glory, not the glory of your congregation, but God's glory. And it's supposed to be sacrificial. It's supposed to cost you something. But also, this love which Jesus is speaking about, it is not a secret love. And what I mean by that is, towards the end of Jesus' ministry... When Pharisees and uh, rulers, they were questioning Jesus and trying to trap Jesus and arrest him. If you remember, Jesus said, everything that I've done, everything that I've said, it hasn't been in the corner. It hasn't been over here in the darkness. It hasn't been in secret. I haven't been conspiring in the, in the darkness, but it's all been in the open. All that I've done, it's been in the open for all to see. This love which he has for the Father, which he has for lost mankind, it's been out in the open the whole time. And so this love which Jesus commands that he himself set an example for, it is not a secret love. It is out in the open for all to know. And that's the kind of love which Jesus speaks about when he tells his disciples that they will love one another. And that will be the mark of their discipleship to this world. I'll give you an example. Um, Aaron and I have been living in Lubbock, Texas for three years now. And we've been to different parts of Texas, to Houston and to the Dallas area and to small towns all in between. And one thing that uh, we've learned as we've tried to adapt to the culture is that Texas, people from Texas, all of them, they love the Dallas Cowboys. It is completely irrational. It doesn't matter how many games they lose. 
And when it comes down to it, they will put on their cowboy's jacket and their cowboy's hat, and they will root for them every... Their vacations are scheduled around the Cowboys game so that they can be somewhere where a TV is to watch the game on Sunday. You know, after having been around them for a while, that Texans love their Dallas Cowboys. It's very apparent. But in the same way, all who know you, they should know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're a disciple of Christ Jesus and that you love one another. Because everything you're saying and doing is aimed towards bringing people's attention back to God's glory. And what you're doing is sacrificial. It doesn't make sense to them from a distance because you're giving more than you're getting. And what you're doing is out in the open for people to see. And your mouth is opening up and speaking in such a way that they know exactly who you are and why you do what you do. Be a true disciple by continuing in God's word and be a true disciple by loving each other. My third point is be a true disciple by bearing fruit. Let's go to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Jesus is speaking here and he says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither you can unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Notice that in verse 8. And so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you, And that your joy may be made full. Be a true disciple by bearing fruit. And I think to get a good idea of what Jesus is talking about here, we kind of have to take a step back and attempt to grasp an eternal perspective from which God sees his work among mankind. We know from 1 Peter 1 that before the foundation of the world, Jesus was the lamb, spotless without blemish, known before man was even created. Because before God created man, he knew that man was going to sin. He knew that man would rupture his relationship with him and that he wouldn't be able to save himself. So God schemed a scheme, you could say. This scheme of redemption in which he he planned his work and then he worked his plan from before the foundation of the world 
even all the way to today. And when you step back and you start looking about how God has worked throughout his people and throughout the world in all history, it's hard to say why he did specifically this or specifically that, but it is easy to see that in the macro, in the big picture, God has been working to save the souls of men. God wants man saved. And the plan in which he carried out to accomplish that was definitely through Jesus Christ. Obviously, we know that he paid the price through his death on the cross. We know that he was raised from the dead when God mightily exerted his strength and carried him to his own right hand to be put as head over all of creation. We know that. But God, he still wants man saved today. And he has this design by which he wants that to be carried out. Now, Jesus paid the price. But Jesus is not going to come down here and do personal Bible studies with lost people in this world. You see, God's plan for that for the message of salvation, so that people would know how to be saved, who they're saved through, God's plan for that was us. And sometimes I think about how wild that is. I mean, if it were me, I would just, I would throw it up in the sky and just have it scrolling across 24-7 so that people could just look up to the clouds and just see the gospel message 24-7, plain as day in all the languages that the world has. If it were me, I would zap people into knowing Jesus Christ, but that's not his plan. That's not the way he went about it. His plan was to use his people to bring the light to the world. That Christ, the pure light, would shine through us so that others may know how to be saved. God has a plan and a design for us, and it's rooted in his eternal purposes. And you think about all the time and the patience and the effort that he carried that out and still does today. Think about the patience he shows you, that he shows all of us. And when we look at it from that perspective, there is an essential element of being a disciple that demands we as the disciples of Christ bear fruit. Now, let me ask you a question you don't have to answer, but think about this. What is the fruit of an apple tree? Perhaps your first instinct is to say the fruit of an apple tree is an apple. But take a step back again and look at the big picture, and you'll see that the fruit of an apple tree is not an apple. The fruit of an apple tree is another apple tree. The apple falls off the tree. The seed goes into the ground. It dies. It is reborn and another apple tree comes about. In the same way, a fruit of a disciple is another disciple. The fruit of a disciple is another disciple in which they die, are reborn, new birth, anyone, and are rooted to the same source of life, Christ Jesus, that you are rooted to. Jesus talks about this in terms of a vine and a vine bearing fruit. And he says, those branches that abide in me, that are rooted in me, they'll bear fruit. 
At the end of this passage, Jesus talks about his joy being made full in his disciples. Before we touch on that, I'd like to give you an illustration. Over the past couple of years, Aaron and I have planted just a small herb garden in our front yard, maybe five foot by five foot or six foot by six foot. Nothing real big, nothing to to brag about, unless you live in Lubbock and you know how hard the ground is and you know how hard it is to grow things there and you know that we've been in a drought for three years. Over that process of building this herb garden, we've learned a few things. You see, there was a lot of hard work involved with that. We had to get down and take weeks and, and spend many hours each day just taking all the weeds out of there, just breaking up the dirt, clearing the bad soil away and putting in good soil. It took a long time. But the joy that we received from that herb garden, it came from two sources. And it didn't come from the scraped knuckles. It didn't come from the sweat of our brow. It didn't come from the hot days in which we labored away trying to make this fertile soil for our herbs. But the joy that we received from that came, first of all, from the fruits of our labor. When we could walk out and pick some fresh basil and throw it in our pasta, that pasta just it tasted just a little bit better that day. Maybe objectively speaking, it tasted the same, but to us it tasted better because we worked for it. And we knew that we had grown this. And so there's the joy of the fruits of our labor. But secondly, most of our joy came from simply being with one another. Working together on the same thing. Back to back, trying our hardest. And that relationship, because of that time that we spent together, working towards a common goal, that relationship grew deeper, and as a result, we received joy. In the same way, when you're out there trying to bear fruit for God, trying to carry out His eternal purposes in your life, the joy doesn't come from the disappointments. The joy doesn't come from the hard work, because it is hard work. The joy doesn't come from all the things that didn't quite work out, but the joy comes from, first of all, seeing those moments where God did work through you and God did work through those around you. And you can see his will in your life being carried out. You can see people, because of what you've been doing, being drawn closer to him. But secondly, the joy will come from that intentional time in which you spent with God working towards what he has been working on since before the foundation of the world. The joy of knowing that you and your father are together in this and that he invites you to carry out his will for saving mankind, for making disciples of all nations, for bringing lost souls back to him. And that is the joy of bearing fruit. That is the joy made full in Jesus Christ. Intentional time with God and hard work. This is a side note, so I'll give this to you for free. I won't charge you. 
But uh, remember that you're not a fruit inspector. And what I mean by that is it's not your job to go around and see if your brother and sister happens to be bearing enough fruit in their lives. There's a vine dresser that takes care of that. Jesus already pointed it out in the parable. It's the Father. He's the vine dresser. He prunes the ones that need to be pruned so that they bear more fruit. He cuts off the branches that don't bear fruit. He's got that under control. But what we can do is we can examine our own fruit. We can examine our own lives and make sure that we are striving to bear fruit for the Lord, that we are striving to save souls. Well, be a true disciple by continuing in God's word. Be a true disciple by loving each other. Remember that love is aimed towards God's glory, sacrificial, it's out in the open. And be a true disciple by bearing fruit. My challenge to you is to go be true disciples and to make true disciples. And if so, then you are the true church of Christ. Whether you have a sign outside that says so or not. Whether you're inside of a building or not. And if you're the true church of Christ, then you are the true Israel of God. And you are God's people.